Welcome, everyone. So good to have all of you at all of our churches, Blunstown, Chipley, and Marianna. I am so glad that you are here for week three of our series entitled First Love. But before we jump into today's conversation, I just want to share something that we are making a shift. So if you're part of RCC, you'll kind of see this shift. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Because of some stuff that we're learning, this is going to be part of our application from this series that we're in for this summer. So two weeks ago, we started this series. We learned that what made the church at Ephesus such an incredible church was in the beginning, they were driven by love to love. In other words, their love for each other, it was so great that they became a portrait of a desired destination for the people in their community. Don't miss that. They became a portrait. We all look at these different portraits of these desired destinations. Well, their church became a portrait of a desired destination for the people in their community. And we want to be that kind of church, a church that loves each other so well, people go, oh, I want to be part of something like that. So to remind us of that, starting in July, our dream team, literally all the people who volunteer at all the different environments at our church, they're going to be wearing these kind of badges instead of the lanyards they're wearing right now that say for you and for kids, depending on the environment they they serve in, because nothing matters more, as we're going to hear today, than being for each other, because then that becomes an overflow into our community of being for them. See, because as the Apostle Paul said, we looked in week one, it's our strong faith in Jesus demonstrated by our love for each other that makes our church a desired destination for the people outside of our church. In fact, if you missed any of the previous two weeks' talks, I mean, I would encourage you to go watch on our app or our website because Gavin did such a great job last week. For those of you that are here, you know how awesome that was. You don't want to miss that talk. And then the first week that I did, it really sets the context for what we're experiencing in this summer series. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and your note-taking devices, and let's go ahead and jump in today's conversation. Now, today I want to remind you something as we begin the third part of our conversation, and that is this. When we started this series, we learned another important detail about the origin story of the church at Ephesus. The church was made up of both Gentiles and Jewish believers. Now, here's why that's such a big deal. The racial and the religious and the political barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles, they were huge. There was great hatred and great division between Jews and Gentiles. So forming this unified, this community of people with a passion for a shared purpose from these two groups of people, it was as difficult as overcoming any kind of racial tension or political polarization that you can imagine in the 21st century. But against all odds, with the power of the Holy Spirit, this church, they began and they began experiencing unity in the beginning. And as the love of Jesus transformed their hearts, basically what happened, their love for each other, it just broke down all the walls and all the barriers and all the racial and all the ethnic and all the political barriers that you would normally experience in that culture. And they experienced something very precious. They experienced unity. They experienced unity in a way that was unheard of in that culture. They were such a portrait of God's love that if you go and read Acts 19, you understand they turned their city, their culture of their city upside down with the good news about Jesus. The church literally became, as I said, a desired destination for those not in their church. Now, about 30 years later, Jesus addressed this church through the apostle John in a letter that most of us know as the book of Revelation. 
And in this letter, they are commended for having right belief and right behavior. But then Jesus confronts them. And I want you to notice what happens or what Jesus says to them 30 years after the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus. And that's significant to us because I've been pastoring. I'm starting my 30th year here at Rivertown Community Church. And so this is not just a warning for the church at Ephesus. It's a warning for us as well. Notice what Jesus says to this church in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, yet I have this against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You have left, you've got distracted from your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I don't want you to miss this. At the beginning of this church, they were a church that was driven by love to love. They had a love for each other that broke down all the walls and all the division. But Jesus said, you left it. You got distracted from it. You forsook it. You left your first love. And what it did is it led to all kind of division and it led to all kind of disunity. And it wasn't external pressure that was the undoing of the church at Ephesus. No, it was internal division and disunity. And don't miss this. Any lack of unity in any church, it always leads to hyper-individualism. In fact, this is what we see throughout the American Christian church. Hyper-individualism. There is this unhealthy independence in our approach to Christianity and our thinking about what it means to to follow Jesus. We think, well, I can just flesh out my relationship with Jesus however I want to on my own. We kind of even project that our relationship with Jesus, it just exists for me and for me alone. But that mindset, it always leads us to have this hyper-individualistic kind of mindset. And a hyper-individualistic kind of mindset, it always leads to division and polarization. And polarization and division always leads to hyper-criticism. And we are living in a culture, a Christian culture, that is just full of hyper-criticism. It's why we said, and our challenge you two weeks ago, we started this, is for eight weeks, we are not going to criticize any Christian. We're not going to criticize any church. We're not going to post anything critical. And by the way, when we say you're not going to criticize any Christian, remember your spouse is a Christian. Just a thought. So the reality is, we're just going to pray. And we started introducing a prayer, which I'll uh, refer to later on in our conversation. In fact, one of the things that I know is we know a little bit about polarization, criticism between people, don't we? we? We all know that. We've all experienced it. In fact, because we all have different preferences, opinions, and ideas, here's what I want you to understand. The, the path of division, the path of polarization and criticism, it is such an easy path. It is so much easier than the path of unity. In fact, to help us understand how easy it is to create division, we're going to start our conversation today playing a game. And, and the game is entitled, This or That. It's going to be either this or that. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to say anything too personal, like who you voted for in a local state or, or you know, a national election kind of thing. But what we're going to do is we're going to put some preferences on the screen. And what I want you to do, all of our churches, Blunstown, Chipley, Mariana, I want you to watch and I want you to feel what happens. I mean, it was amazing at 9 o'clock. We all kind of felt it. it was really good. Uh, so it's okay for you to shout out in this game. It's okay to disagree with your neighbor. But don't get verbal about it. Just shout out your answer, right? And you can really be passionate about it, right? So everybody ready? Here we go. All of our churches, everybody ready? Here we go. 
Hulu or Netflix? Netflix. Yeah, about half and half, right? All right, here we go. Here's the next one. Action movies or comedy movies? Ah, uh, here we go. Okay, how about this one? Sweet or salty? Yeah, about how, see, okay, let's get, we're building attention good. It gets better. Here we go. Spicy or mild? Spicy. Oh, well, we're getting more passionate about this thing, right? Here we go. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. <laughs> okay, this next one's going to even be better. Here we go. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> Some of you are really passionate about this, okay? Books or movies? All right, hang on, the next one. Don't bump anybody, don't look at anybody, just say what you feel. Here we go, you ready? Mac or PC? <laughs> Marvel or DC? Country or hip hop? All right, everybody ready for the next one? Here we go. Zaxby's or Chick-fil-A? <laughs> By the way, dads, you can eat for free at Chick-fil-A today if you take your own lunch. Anyhow, some of you just got that, right? Here we go. Beach or mountains? All right, couples, don't be bumping each other on this next one. You ready? Here we go. Early bird or night owl? <laughs> you, you kind of feel it, aren't you? Right? All these different preferences, a little bit of attention. Okay, this last one's going to determine who's a Christian, not a Christian. Cats or dogs? <laughs> yeah, dogs. There you go. I'm going to be praying for all of you who said cats. No. <laughs> I mean, seriously, we, we did that in fun, but you see how different we are? And, and you could even feel, even though it's in fun, there was just a little bit of tension. Like we start, kept getting louder and louder. And the other way in, the, in nine o'clock service as well, it just kept getting louder. And we all can feel that tension. And here's the thing, none of those things really mattered at all, did they? But we got some serious preferences about it. See, the truth is, on the serious side of this thing, we have felt the greater tension of division. At some point in our life, we have felt great tension of disunity. All of us have. In fact, most of us, what we hear every day from any news media or any social media kind of feed, is how divided, how polarized America is on every issue. In fact, if you listen to news media, news feeds, social media, you, you believe, and it's probably true, that our, our country is basically split in the middle regarding anything to do with anything political, right? But here's the thing, and this is how this applies to us. It's not just our nation that is divided. The church, the capital C church, has taken divisiveness to a sick art form. I mean, the church is so divided that it is attacking itself publicly, which is so unbiblical, by the way. But that's a whole conversation for another day. And then we wonder why nobody wants to be part of Christianity or part of the church. Like, you go attack each other and then go, oh, please come be part of us. Like, that's like a dysfunctional family going, oh, come be part of our dysfunction, right? We, you think you're sick now, you come be part of us and we'll make you sicker. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm just watching and I'm seeing the fallout of Christians who are just ingesting divisive content at a much greater level than they are internalizing scripture for spiritual growth and life transformation. 
As I said in week one, I mean, nothing has hurt the church more than followers of Jesus who treat their relationships with each other so casually that they can just walk away from a church family never saying a word. Nothing has hurt the church more than followers of Jesus who insult others just because they simply disagree on preferences, who cancel others just because they have differences of opinion. Like nothing has hurt the church more than followers of Jesus who have quietly quit or maybe they didn't quietly quit. And they became cynical and they, they started posting things on social media to down other Christian or other churches. And they disengaged because here's what you normally find. They disengage in their part in serving in and building up the body of Christ. In fact, many of you over the last couple of years, you've told me your stories of how you have experienced and felt the pain of church, the disunity, the division. And some of you, I mean, you just went through some really tough church splits in your past where the division was so deep that there was a lot of wounds and now you still have this deep hurt that is trying to heal. In fact, some of you, you said, oh, I walked away from the church or some of you, you said, I thought about walking away from the church because the church that you were part of, you didn't know it, but they had lost their first love. They left their first love. And I'm telling you, folks, it is heartbreaking. And even more than heartbreaking, it is alarming how divided and how polarized the Christian community is on different issues. And many of them don't even matter. But it was never meant to be this way. I mean, the entire purpose of what Jesus did in coming to this earth, living, dying, and then rising again, it was not only to reconcile our relationship with God, man and God, but it was also to reconcile our relationship with each other. You could say it this way. Jesus died to unite us, not to divide us. And this is not just some minor issue. The Apostle Paul, he writes about this over and over and over. He understands this deeply. He knew that the greatest enemy of the church is division and disunity, not the outside forces. And what is so helpful about the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is he helps us understand this new reality of what Jesus did for us at the cross and what that really means for all of us who are followers of Jesus, who are, make up the body of Christ. In fact, I want you to notice, go ahead and pull your Bibles out and go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 11, where Gavin left off in verse 10 last week. But I want you to notice what he writes beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 2 verse 11. He says, therefore, remember, we're going to come back to that word remember at the end of our conversation today. So hold that in your thoughts. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, to kind of understand the statement, you got to know a little bit of history about the Jews and the Gentiles. See, the Jewish people, they believed that you could not have a relationship with God unless you had been circumcised. So they saw the Gentiles the uncircumcised as unworthy to be in a relationship with God. Because they were uncircumcised, they equated them to their dogs. That's the value they saw them as. So the Jewish people, they said, listen, we believe that God loves us, these Jew we, us Jewish people that are circumcised, but these uncircumcised Gentiles, no. Nah. Now, you talk about building some barriers, creating some polarization. I mean, this was happening in the church at Ephesus. 
But before we become too judgmental about the Jewish believers, for those of us at all of our churches who are followers of Jesus, I think this is very important for us to pause on for just a minute and think about ourselves. Because here's the thing, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of believing that God loves us, the circumcised church people, more than he loves them uncircumcised people in this world with their uncircumcised behavior. Before long, we can feel like that we're part of this exclusive club, that we're smarter, that we're morally superior, and that we're better than everybody else outside the church, them uncircumcised people and their behavior. Now, here's the thing. That mindset is not just limited to how we think about the culture around us. If we're not careful, we start thinking through that same mindset about other people in our church. We start seeing people in our churches that if they agree with us, well, they're part of the circumcised crowd with me. Or if they disagree with us on some things, well, they're part of those uncircumcised people. They're they're those uncircumcised. And I'm just telling you, the Apostle Paul is saying this, this mindset is so divisive. It's so destructive. It's why he's addressing it. In fact, he goes on to address it even more in verse 12. Notice what he says. Remember that at that time, at that time, meaning that before you were a follower of Jesus. So notice what he says. Remember at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. Don't miss this. The people of Israel believed that they held the keys to a relationship with God. So if you didn't play by their rules, then you couldn't be part of their club. You were, notice this, you were excluded. You were on the outside. You were without hope and without God in this world. I mean, that was the barrier that Gentile people like us were facing in the first century church. So as you can imagine, most people who were Gentiles, they felt like they had no chance of being in a relationship with God. So the Apostle Paul, he comes along and he says, remember that this is where you were at in the past. But the Apostle Paul also reminds us of something else, that everything changed when Jesus showed up. Notice verse 13. But now, in that something happened that is different and life-changing. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. How did this happen? For he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups, don't miss that, the Jewish group, the circumcised, and the Gentile group, the uncircumcised. What has he done? He says he has made the two groups one. It's pretty powerful. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By setting aside his, in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Now, I'm just telling you, folks, this is so important. The Apostle Paul is saying that when Jesus died and he rose again, he broke down the barriers to unity. When he paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin, he took away everything that separates us from God and each other. He made it possible that there are no barriers ending any kind of hostility. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Like there is no barrier to you being in a relationship with God or even being one with each other in the body of Christ. So what that means is whenever you see a barrier, 
or you encounter some kind of barrier, you know it's an unnecessary barrier that people created on their own. And listen, those unnecessary barriers, they are what make the church so resistible to people. In fact, look at the last part of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. He says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and revelations, his purpose was, what was the purpose of this? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two. There again, the Jews and the Gentiles who were so hostile to each other. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he is put to death. Again, here's that word, their hostility. This means that Jesus came, down to, Jesus came to tear down every wall, to break down every barrier that makes it difficult for you to have a relationship with God as well as it makes it difficult for you to have a relationship with other people who are Christ followers, the church. So the apostle Paul says, Jesus didn't come to build walls. Jesus came to build bridges. He didn't come to, notice this, he didn't come to exclude, he came to include. By the way, do you know what this word reconcile right here means? It means to take two things that are at odds with each other, that are opposed to each other, and bring them into alignment or into agreement. He's saying, that's what Jesus did for us through the cross. You and I, we were at odds with God We were at odds with each other because of our sin. And Jesus did what we could not do to bring us back into alignment and agreement with our Heavenly Father. And not only do that, in some kind of supernatural way, reconcile us to each other. In fact, I love how the New Living paraphrase ends verse 16. It it says it this way. It says, the feud ended at the cross. The feud ended at at the cross. And as a follower of Jesus, it means the feud needs to end at the cross. So here's the thing. The apostle Paul is reminding us as followers that even though we have difference in how we see things, the division, the divisiveness for a follower of Jesus is just not optional. In fact, the apostle Paul begins in verse 17 to describe how different we should be, what we should look like now. Notice this in verse 17. He says, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Whether you thought you were far from God or you thought you were close to God. Whether you're the Gentile that thought you had no chance or you're the Jew that thought you were in with God. What he's saying is we all equally need Jesus to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And then he goes on. He says, for through him, referring to Jesus, we both, once again, Jew and Gentile, we both, people on either side, have access to the Father by one spirit. And I want you to notice this first sentence here. He's bringing into the whole idea Trinitarian unity. Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we have access? What kind of access does he want us to have? He wants us to experience Trinitarian unity. And I want to pause here for just a moment and help you understand what I mean when I say Trinitarian unity. I love the way that Dr. Larry Crabb, years ago in his book, Connecting, and seminars that he'd do, he would describe this. He'd say, we don't understand what, what unity means in the body of Christ until we understand Trinitarian unity. 
He says, so here's, here's the, he would ask this question. He would say, so when you think of God before creation and before man was created, what do you think of? What do you think of? And most people think of God before creation. Well, it was dark and it was lonely and it was quiet. It was emptiness, stillness. And Larry, Dr. Larry Crabb would say, no, 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 no. I want you to think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect unity and oneness. So think of joy, think of delight, think of happiness in being together. Think of a sense of community and relationship that was absolutely perfect, one for all and all for one. No division, no divisiveness. Something so good, relationship that was so good that God says to himself, oh, I got to share this with somebody. And so he created the world and he put man in it. And he started out with that kind of relationship. He would walk with man and say, oh, let me share this kind of relationship with you. And then remember, sin broke that relationship. But God says, no, this is so important. They sent his son, Jesus, to die and rise again so that we both, all of us, could have access to the Father by one spirit. And he says the result of that is consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So the good news is this, when you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, notice this, God adopts you into his forever family. You have been given the privilege and the position of access to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, to experience that kind of unity with him so we can experience that kind of unity with each other, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in a relationship of unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are a member, notice this, of his household. You are a part of his family. This means as a follower of Jesus... That there is nothing more valuable that we should understand to Jesus than his church. I mean, think about how Jesus describes all the people who are followers of him. How does he describe us? He, he describes us as his bride, his body, his flock, his family. Listen, for those of you that are married, isn't your spouse pretty valuable to you? Like, that's a pretty big deal. And God describes us that way. I mean, your body's a pretty big deal to you, right? I mean, how would you feel if somebody looked at you and go, oh, I like your head, but I don't like your body? <laughs> See, a lot of us try to do that to Jesus, like, oh, Jesus, I like your head, I like you, but I don't like your body. No, no, his body matters. We're his flock. He cares about us. That's a, that's a statement of great care. It's a nurturing statement. We're his family. I mean, like, in, in the family, sometimes we can talk about, you know, we can kind of get at each other's skin, right? But don't let anybody else get at it, get us. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we, our family matters, right? Don't, don't miss this. Jesus died to unite us, not to divide us. And there's a lot of Christians out there that think that he died to divide us. No, Jesus died for the unity of you and me, the oneness, the togetherness of the church. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus prayed for, this is what was on Jesus' mind before he goes to the cross. I mean, think about it. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to take the sin of all mankind on himself. He's going to have this time of separ being separated from that unity that he had experienced for all eternity. He prayed in John 17, right before he goes to the cross, that you and I would be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Because he said, Father, I pray they'll be one so the world will believe that I am who you, I said I am. He prayed that we would pursue Trinitarian unity. 
This means that the pursuit and the priority of unity in the body of Christ, it is a huge deal to God. The priority of unity is not optional for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Unity is not something that we can say, well, if it happens, it happens, or if it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. No, no, we can't say it's not a big deal. No, unity is a big deal to Jesus. He died for the unity of the body. In fact, if you look at Scripture, it can be argued that the evidence of our salvation is shown by our passion for unity in the body of Christ. This means if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have the freedom not to live in community with each other. Because a lot of people do. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means you don't have the option not to pursue unity. This means there's no place for individualism, especially this hyper-individualism that we're seeing in the church today, in the family of God. And that's why the New Testament has far more to say about followers of Jesus living in harmony and oneness and unity than it does about heaven or it says about hell either. See, Jesus died and he rose again so that we could truly experience unity, true community, true oneness, true harmony with other believers. That's why the Apostle Paul makes this next declaration in verses 21 and verse 22. Notice what he says. In him, the whole building, meaning the household of God, you and I, is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I don't want you to miss this. Because I think this is one of the most important statements in scripture for why the church exists. Here's why Jesus destroyed the hostility. Because God wants a watching world to look at RCC, Bluntstown, Chipley, Mariana, Wakala. God wants a watching world to look at any church and say, God lives there. Not in the building, but in the building of the people all together. God wants the church to be such a place of unity that the church is a portrait of God's love to us and to the world. So the question is, well, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me as a follower of Jesus? Like, What is the practical application of understanding this new kind of reality that unity is not optional for a follower of Jesus? It should, it's a sign of whether we have lost our first love, whether we've left our first love. Well, let me give you three things. You might want to write them down. The first one is this. We have to quit separating salvation and community. Like, like you most likely have heard people say, as a pastor, I've heard this, they'll say, well, I can be a Christian and not go to church. That possibly could be true. In fact, I've had people tell me, well, I can be a better Christian and not go to church because I don't have to be around all those crazy people. I'm like, well, does that really make you a better Christian? Because like God has to be around you. You're kind of crazy. <laughs> that kind of takes them off guard when a pastor says that. You know, God loves you and all your mess. See, we learn to love in the messiness. Or here's another way to think about it. You can be married and never go home. But are you really married if you never go home? See, here's what we miss. I I say that because here's what we miss. 
Being a follower of Jesus is not a transactional thing. It's not checking a list. It's relational. It's a relationship with God, and it's a relationship with other believers. Because here's what I believe. You can't love Jesus without loving and having a passion for his imperfect body. Because he has a passion for it. Second thing, not only is, do we have to quit separating community and salvation, but the church is not just a place you attend. You are the church. Listen, please understand this. I've said this for years. You are the church. And if you don't understand and embrace this truth that the church is not just a place you attend, but that you are the church, you will always be struggling, well, where do I fit in the church? You will always be struggling. Do I need a church or do I not need a church? Do I need to be part of a local gathering or do I not need to be part of a local gathering? No, no, no. The church is not a place you attend. You are the church. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. We are the temple. Together we make up this holy dwelling for Jesus. So when you talk about the church, you should always be looking through the grid of a mirror, looking at yourself. When you say, oh, the church, you you need to be looking at yourself because you are the church. Because see, too often what we do is we treat the church as this building like a restaurant or some kind of pit stop that you can stop at whenever it's convenient for you and get filled back up and keep going. And it's all about consuming. No, the church is a gathering of people with a common purpose because of their common union, not just a place that's supposed to create programs to pamper you and make you happy. Because what happens when people pamper you and make you happy? You get more spoiled and you get more self-centered. No, the church is a family that you belong to. It's why years ago I I created this statement um, called I am the church. I am the church. What I am the church is. When I serve, the church serves. When I reach out, the church reaches out. When I give, the church gives. When I love, the church loves. And when I don't, the church doesn't. Everybody sit with me at all of our churches. Why? Because I am the church. Who you are, who I am, that's what the church is. So the church is not a place we attend. You are the church. Third thing you need to know. Our church's influence in our community is directly tied to the unity we display. The church, you and I, we we should be, as I said before, the desired destination that the people around us want to be a part of. We should be modeling the kind of life that they want to live and experience. They should be leaning in and wanting to know how in the world are we living lives of love and peace and joy and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and self-control. It should be that appealing. They're going, oh, I I, I want to be part of that. But as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I mean, in the recent years, we have spent more time ingesting divisive content than internalizing scripture for transformation. And I want to tell you something, folks. God has never called us to be portraits of social media or news outlets. But yet we repost what they do all the time. Neither has he called us to be portraits of the opinion of insecure and fearful people who call them Christians who fuel divisiveness and criticism on social platforms behind the veil of defending the truth. And because somehow or another they're defending the truth, they feel like they can tear down the body of Christ. I don't see that in Scripture. Instead, we've got to remember that we are to be a portrait of unity 
to a world that desperately, desperately needs to understand God's love, God's grace, God's kindness, God's forgiveness. And I'm telling you, this kind of unity that's to be portrayed to this world that so desperately needs to see it as a destination that they want to be part of, it's why that throughout this series that when you come in, you find these blank papers on your seat because we're praying for each other. And what we're asking you to do every week is you write a prayer request on this. Put your name on it. Put your initial on it. If you don't want people to know your name, put an alias down. But just put a prayer request on this and then just roll it into this kind of little roll and then just slide it into the prayer wall and the slot on prayer wall and take a prayer and be praying for somebody. It's why we are walking through this prayer that is based upon this study and we keep expanding it every week. In fact, if you missed the last two weeks, this is what we have said we're going to be praying for each other. We start off in week one saying, I'm praying for you, our church. And, and for many of you, instead of criticizing, condemning, and, and complaining about the church, we said for eight weeks, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to pray for our church. We're going to start praying not only for our church, but for the church in general. And then last week, Gavin led us to say, we're going to be praying for your church to know God's love for you. And today we're adding another line, and this is the line that you'll find on your card as well today, and to love each other well. Listen. While most of us don't think about it, one of the best outward symbols of our commitment to pursue unity is communion. I want you to think about this whole thing of loving each other well through the eyes or the lens of communion. Communion is made up of two words, common union. We all have a common union, the apostle Paul said. It's the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and spilled out for us on the cross. That's our common union. And he spends all of Ephesians chapter 2 that we just looked at reminding us of that. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together to anchor this truth, but not just to anchor this truth that we have a common union in Christ, but it's going to be a symbol of our commitment that together we're going to be a portrait of the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the patience and the forgiveness that our Father has shown to us because He's shown a lot of love and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness to each one of us, right? In fact, every time we take communion, as Apostle Paul said at the beginning uh, in verse 11, he says, I want you to remember, I want you to remember. So every time we take the communion together, we're recalling and we're rehearsing, we're remembering God's incredible love for us over all these years, especially that he broke down the barrier of hostility between us and God and us and each other. And here's why remembering is so important. Remembering God's love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his forgiveness. Can I tell you what it feeds? It feeds two attitudes in our heart when we remember. It feeds the attitude of gratitude and humility. And gratitude and humility are the foundation for unity. Gratitude and humility are the foundation for unity. So when you came in today, there were communion elements on your chair. So as we take communion, I want you to remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross to reconcile us, not only to himself, but also to each other. In fact, as you take communion today, I want you to do one of these three things. Maybe you need to do all three of these things. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, would you confess it to Jesus and repent of it? 
fact, if you have any broken, second thing, if you have any broken relationships in your life, will you confess that to Jesus right now as well? And then say, Jesus, I commit to do whatever is necessary to forgive that person and to move on. Listen, to allow sin or broken relationships in your life is to mock the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And then as I shared, the third thing is communion is made up of two words, common union. So as we take communion, we're remembering and we're committing to our calling to pursue unity. To say, Jesus, you're going to be my first love. And because you're my first love, I'm going to display that first love to the body because I'm going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, Jesus said unity is the only thing that's going to make the gospel contagious and the church irresistible to the world around us. So as as we take communion together today, I, I want to call us to remember how far we have fallen. Because anytime we have apathy toward unity, it's a sign that we have fallen away from our first love. And, and I want to challenge you today to say, God, I, I, realize, I realize to some extent how far I've fallen, so I'm going to lay down my rights, my arrogance that demand my rights. I'm going to surrender all of my rights to you, Jesus, at the foot of your cross. And you're going to be my first love. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to take these communion elements together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. God, we come before you and we repent. Because we've left, we've got distracted our first love, from our first love. So much so that instead of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit as a priority, we become apathetic about unity in the body. We're sorry for our sin and we ask you to forgive us and we say, God, we're going to pursue. We're going to pursue loving as you've loved us. So as we take communion together now, God, just remind us of the sacrifice that our Savior paid for us to be reconciled to Him and to each other. So if you will, take the bread. Because this bread represents His body that was broken for us so that we can have a relationship with Him, so we could be reconciled. So let's eat the bread together. cup, it represents the blood that was shed to wash away all of our sin. It reminds us that love covers a multitude of sin. So today as we drink the juice for this cup, we're remembering our calling as followers of Jesus to love as Jesus loved. So as you drink it today, drink it as a commitment of saying, Jesus, I'm choosing to pursue unity by making the commitment to love as you've loved me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity to together as a body of Christ 
remember. Remember what you did for us so that we could experience unity with you and with each other. And God, I, I oftentimes look at our church, I look at the church in general and go, God, how in the world are you going to make this happen? And I thank you for your reminder to me that our job is to endeavor to keep the unity and make it the passion of our heart. Your responsibility is through your miraculous power, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, that you can make it happen. It's beyond us, but through your power, you can do more than we ever could imagine or think. And God, I just thank you for how you're going to continue to transform us as, as we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and, and be a church that's passionate about having Trinitarian-level unity, that kind of love, that kind of care for each other. And God, I just want to thank you for how you're going to help the church become this desired, or this portrait of a desired destination for the people in our communities. So I thank you for your reconciling work and we remember and we recall and today we recommit to endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. Hey everyone, don't forget, take your prayer card to be praying for our church and also don't forget to put your prayer request on the wall and take a prayer request as you're leaving today. Have a great day.